Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Francis Spufford, whose previous books include The Child That Books Build, in which he re-explored all the favourite books of his childhood, and I may be some time, a cultural history of our fascination with ice and polar exploration. His latest book is called Red Plenty, and as his website teasingly asks, is it a novel, is it non-fiction? It all depends on your definition. It tells a true story, but it tells it as a story. Perhaps we should think of it as a novel of ideas, or else a non-fiction book which tests the boundaries of imaginative non-fiction to their limits. What we can say with certainty is that it looks at one of humanity's great dreams that failed, the Soviet Union's attempts in the 1960s to turn itself into a land of plenty from which want and shortages would be banished forever. But the fact that it failed does not mean that it was any the less real or intensely experienced as an ambition by the characters, both real and fictional, who inhabit the pages of Francis's book. When I met him at his home in Cambridgeshire recently, I began by asking him what had drawn him to the subject in the first place. I was interested in plenty before I was interested in, in red Soviet plenty. I think following the dot-com crash in the spring of 2000, I, I, I started wondering about how the psychology of of the human desire for abundance works, which is very, very widely distributed. Um, then I thought the way, to, the way to handle this is to find a story of abundance to tell. And I realised that there was a kind of family of stories about, about abundance, different societies in the 20th century. And somewhere in there, I found I found the Soviet one and thought, hmm, this is interesting. This is, this is counterintuitive because it is, in fact, a version of the familiar story. But there are so many partitions between us and it of, of politics and culture and ideology. And also just the, the kind of the incredibly blood-soaked and tragic history of the 20th century, which, which makes recognising similarities difficult. But if you're going to tell a story of plenty, it might as well be the least obvious one. It might as well be the one that brings out the universal part of this story, the way that everyone wants to live, where it is feast forever and never a fast again. You might as well tell it at the top of the steepest hill of, of, of difficulty and explanation you can find. Because for one thing, that will make it possible to feel the value of, of the plenty in question. One of the difficulties for us living amidst one of the successful versions of plenty, successful so far anyway, is that it's hard to feel something which is a, a steady, constant stimulus. It's hard to be as amazed as we ought to by the very, very odd place we live, historically speaking. We ought to we ought to be awed by every branch of, of Tesco's and Sainsbury's, instead of which we, we take them for granted. So I needed I needed a place where the distant, radiant prospect of a branch of Tesco's would be a goal that might justify almost anything. And the Soviet Union was not only seeking plenty, but it had nailed that ambition right at the top, you know, being a, an atheist materialist state. This was really the, the myth by which it was going to live or die, wasn't it? It had it was make or break, really, wasn't it? One of the things that's that's difficult for us is to get past the the kind of dismal austerity of later Soviet history as as we remember it from before 1991. And to remember that once upon a time, this really was a place 
premised on the promise of, of, of outrageous abundance. And yeah, because it was a materialist society, that was all there was, that the, the payoff had to be this worldly. They, they'd been incredibly scornful about about religion and, and pie in the sky. So the pie had to be presented, an actual literal material pie. There was a there was a point in the second half of the 1950s when when the promise really did seem to be coming true, when Soviet growth, even measured in the most sceptical and ideologically hostile way, was I think the second best on the planet after after Japan, when Soviet citizens were palpably richer year by year. They were no longer living in damp Tsarist tenements. They were they were now in exciting new concrete flats with with bathrooms um, they were they were dressed in new clothes and on the strength of this the regime led by possibly the the last true believing general secretary or maybe you should count Gorbachev as that but anyway a rash true believer in the shape of Khrushchev promised that the rest of the climb up to abundance was happening and not just happening soon or or as a vague aspiration but happening on a timetable and that by 1980 Soviet citizens would be the richest people in the world. There was some wiggle room built in there. They, they carefully defined abundance so that, yeah, so that it did come down to socks, mashed potatoes and shared use of a trombone. But nevertheless, they really meant abundance, kind of the overflowing horn of plenty. And, and they put in a comparative element too. They said richer than capitalism. They promised Russians that they would be richer than Americans an astonishingly innocent and stupid thing to, thing to do and i think a fascinating place to tell a story and there's a there's a wonderfully blackly comic and possibly apocryphal story near the end of the book where a couple have buried in a time capsule the the prognostications made in the early 60s about life in the 1980s it may not be true but there was a there was a rumor going around in in emigre and dissident circles in the 1980s that a couple in Russia had dug up a homemade time capsule in which they'd buried the official 1961 party programme and read it out loud to people and been promptly arrested for spreading anti-Soviet propaganda because that document was forgotten with the, the heaviest, thickest blanket of amnesia that the Soviet state could muster. It was just so embarrassingly detailed in its promise of, of cybernetic good times. You said that you'd identified this as a, as a good story, but I imagine when, once you got into the research, there, there must have been quite a daunting element to it, you know, looking at, at steel seven-year plans and, and you know, the, the economic nitty-gritty and also the unreliability of a lot of it. How did you sort of cut through that or how did you approach that, that aspect of it and not become sort of crushed between a, you know, under a mountain of grain statistics? I cannot deny that part of the perverse attraction of the material to me was that it is legendarily boring. I suffer, I think, from some kind of faint kind of writer's machismo in which, in which I really like the idea of taking a notoriously boring subject and arm wrestling it into submission, whereupon it will give, give a little squeak and disclose something, something nice to read about. But also what's boring about the Soviet Union is, is the layer of official bullshit that covered everything. What isn't boring about the Soviet Union, what I didn't have to work to make interesting, is what happens as the official bullshit coexists with people's real lives. And right from the beginning, I knew that how I wanted to handle it was as 
something where the ideas were constantly being played off against the texture of experience, where you get all of the ironies of theory failing to become practice or practice arguing against theory, somewhere where ideas full of human yearning, where they get checked by the this stubborn material reality of Soviet life. I wanted somewhere where where the greyness wasn't depressing, although maybe tragic, but was was the source of a kind of comedy of greyness, somewhere where where the ideas were primary coloured and were constantly being called into question by by a grey a grey reality. I'm I'm gonna borrow your metaphor of, of wrestling the material to the ground and also your, your many allusions to fairy tales in the book. Because, because like in a fairy tale, when you begin to wrestle with this material, it seemed to me that it changed shape. It turned into something that, that perhaps you hadn't expected it to be when you began to wrestle with it. When I first, when I first started working on it, I was thinking in terms of a fairly conventional piece of nonfiction. And then I realised that actually that would give me only a limited and quite remote sense of the of the human reality which was checking and complicating the fine ideas and that if i really wanted to make interesting things happen between ideas and experience i would need to have the experience happening for the reader on the page and the implication of that was that it became something much more like fiction something where where as you read it you were you were in the moment which is of course a very interesting challenge to make it work for Western readers, and also to make it to make it be something I could handle as a Western writer, I'm being as 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 honest about this as I can. I do not speak Russian. I can I've got a few tourist yes please no thank you kind of kind of phrases, and that's it. So everything I did came through the written word and through through talking to people and asking them to translate things, and and also reading all of the stuff which the CIA bless them translated during during the Cold War. But I had I had to find a way of, of doing human reality which which was quite far off for me as it as it would be for the readers. What I've got to is not quite a novel, or if it is a novel, it's a novel which has an awful lot to explain, as I as I say at the beginning of the book. It's, I mean, I, I, I came around to thinking that perhaps it's, it's a novel which repudiates its own mm. novelistic character, but, but in fact, you describe it right at the end, in the end matter, which of course is, is not novelistic, but you say it's, a, it's um, a halfway house on the borders of fiction. Mm. It seemed to me that it was, it was kind of situated in, in, that, in that interesting border zone, which is not, not, a, not a widely populated zone, but you've, you had kind of pushed from non-fiction quite far towards fiction. I hope so. I, I hope I've, I've pushed as far into fiction as I as I could get. In some ways, of course, I'd be really delighted if people took it as a as a novel, a, a novel of ideas. I was just aware all the way through that it, it keeps one necessary foot back in the world of 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 nonfiction because the thing it's got to impart is not just a piece of complicated private human experience. The thing that that it wants to tell you is about how a bunch of private lives fitted together with with a big historical idea passing through those lives and it's it's more idea shaped than it is life shaped in some ways i have tried to make it as lively as i can so that so that the characters are as rounded as i can make them and they are full i hope 
of life that feels like the life of people, certainly not the life of, of animated mouthpieces for ideas. Nevertheless, this book looks away from them at various points when a novel would, would go, ah, here comes the good stuff, because Red Plenty has to go kind of announce some economics. What it seemed to me that it enabled you to do was to go was to go back into the states of minds or to try to recreate the states of minds of those people in the, in the late 50s, the early 60s, when, as you said before, things did seem possible. Optimism and idealism were in the air rather than with the, the sort of heavy weight of, of later knowledge, which I suppose a non-fiction book would find very difficult to resist. But it's very striking that those characters in the, in the early section of the book are very young and, and full of the, the sense of, of what's possible, aren't they? There was a very hopeful generation in, in, in the Soviet Union in the 60s, which not by any coincidence at all were then the middle-aged generation who supported Gorbachev 20 years later. And without telling lies about Soviet reality, without denying the darkness of it at all, I wanted to, to insist on there being in the mixture something which is in some respects harder for us to see in the West because we've got the story of the Soviet tragedy running so loud and clear in our heads that the hardest thing for us is to understand how anybody could ever have thought it was a, a hopeful a hopeful place to live in. My characters, pretty much without exception, I mean, though Khrushchev is a, is a partial exception, know less about the kind of the main disastrous events of their own country than we do as readers. They are people with restricted information, and that's one of the grounds on which they can be hopeful. But it's also true that the Soviet Union provided something which a lot of its citizens valued, which was a, a version of modern life, which they were rather proud of. And yes, it had been incredibly costly in, in human terms creating it. But that was a reason to hang on to the achievements in some ways, because who would wish to have suffered for no reason? Who would, who would wish to have a history which is only tragic? And at that point, the Soviet story appears to be heading onwards and upwards, kind of away from tragedy towards something better. They don't know in 1961 that the arc of the thing descends again at the end towards towards it being a country full of antiquated tractor factories run by, run by sick old men with kidney diseases, which is a kind of global byword for, for futility. They don't know that they are within a hope which we're in danger of forgetting about because it doesn't fit very well into the, the story we tell now looking back. How great and what was the nature of the challenge which faced the Soviet economy? Because a, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of the, the book is taken up with grappling with just that challenge because it, it kind of didn't obey the classical Marxist trajectory of socialism grown out of mature capitalism so there was a it was it was sort of they were having to write the the roadmap themselves weren't they the, the rule book didn't really exist for what they had to do so what, what were they attempting to do the soviet union was on uncharted ground in terms of in terms of marxist theory because marx had said that socialism would come in really advanced capitalist societies where capitalism had done all the construction work and the victorious socialists could pretty much take over a kind of a high-tech system perfect it and then and then run it for everyone's benefit instead of which it came in the poorest country in europe so the bolsheviks after one quick disastrous experiment in just saying let's ordain paradise by law at the beginning which didn't work 
the Bolsheviks had to to do the job that capitalism had done elsewhere. They had to have an industrial revolution. They had to to get people literate and and train them and build roads and railways and things and electrify. I mean, the thing Lenin's thing about about socialism being being Soviet power plus electrification sounds amazingly crude, but but it it goes to the nub of the problem, which is that they really had no electrification in in 1917. So with immense brutality they took virtually the whole the whole proceeds of the economy in the 1930s and they industrialized by force they prevented people from from having you know really any income worth spending on consumer goods and spent all of the money on on crash industrialization first step of industrialization steel coal electricity and that they did pretty successfully though at immense human cost and and their growth rate you know their, their growth their growth rate was was tremendous through through the 1950s the problem was that to do the next stage they needed another industrial revolution to to move them on from coal and steel onto plastics and pharmaceuticals and artificial fibers and um, early computers and things like like that and they had committed themselves in the 1930s to to an economic setup that made it astonishingly difficult ever to change the first set in stone structures that that had happened under under Stalin so the people i'm talking about idealists people with with some genuinely impressive mathematics at their at their fingertips came up with the idea basically improving the soviet union software the hardware was 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 very hard to get at but if but, you know running running a different and cleverer program you could you could move onwards through the next stages of industrialization to the to the goal of 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 red plenty the problems there being that that would only work if the soviet union really worked the way it said on the tin you can only change the software of a system successfully if you know what the system has got in it um, and one of the sets of ironies that i'm talking about in red plenty is that you know the soviet union did not function the way that political descriptions of it said it did certainly not the way that innocent scholars thought it did which is why in the middle of the book i've got a section which is some real industry solving problems in a way which has nothing at all to do with the ideas in in the rest of the book so, so I suppose I mean, I suppose it's, it's it's a source of of some of the comedy, but also the the ultimate tragedy. This mismatch between these yeah. high ideals, the intellectual effort expended on them, and reality on on the ground. I mean this to be a kind of a kind of comedy about things things getting out of control, rather like Chaplin's film Modern Times, for example, where where the the, the production line just carries you carries you off. Something happens in the Soviet Union, which is which is I mean, it's. it's maybe it's more like the sorcerer's apprentice um, a process is begun that they cannot stop the reason for all that heavy industry in the soviet union was to prepare the ground for the rest of prosperity instead of which the turnout not to be any linkages between the heavy industry and, and any other economic goal they might want so the heavy industry just goes on producing more heavy industry and even more heavy industry you cut the broomstick in half and both bits pick up the buckets and carry on drawing the water until by the end, by Gorbachev and Perestroika, the Soviet Union has more of its economy devoted to heavy industry than any other society in history ever. They have more steel and coal and electricity than anybody could ever want. Um, but they no longer have any way of 
of using it. And use is the Achilles heel of the whole system. And that's got a philosophical irony of its own because they, they had prided themselves that they were they were producing for use. Capitalism produces for profit, which as everyone knows is a, a semi-fictional accounting thing. Look at Enron. And the Soviet Union would produce bags of cement for people who needed bags of cement. The trouble is that without prices that make any sense, it turns out, it's very, very difficult to produce the right number of bags of cement. So the Soviet Union ends up on this terrible runaway cycle of producing less and less useful things it's it's as if it's as if human wishes had, had got away from us and had taken up an independent disastrous new life and made us made us their servants not an accident that actually that's astonishingly like marx's description of what's bad about capitalism there is a a desperate ironic mirror imaging going on in here in, in which the Bolsheviks reinvent what's worst about capitalism only worse still. I, th I think you say at one point an economist calculated that the Soviet economy is actually subtracting value by using all these primary ingredients in order to produce things which nobody actually used or wanted. It was actually taking value away. This, this vast machine, you know, would actually have been better off just being switched off rather than doing what it was doing. Yeah, the the, the economist I'm I'm thinking of said very nicely and neatly that by the end the Soviet Union was taking cotton which you could have sold for actual money on the world market and turning it into shirts quotes so hideous that even Soviet citizens were unwilling to wear them and at the same time let's stick stick with the cotton harvest another another favorite dreadful true fact of mine um, by the end their means of telling what was going on out in the country were were so poor and there were so many lies in the system that the kgb was trying to measure the cotton crop using spy satellites there are moments in the book where this mismatch between what is planned and what happens have have very serious tragic consequences i'm thinking of the the massacre that takes place in Novocherkask. Can you can you say a bit about how that came about? The Novocherkask massacre is is purposely in the middle of the book. It's among all the atrocious things that happened in the Soviet times. This one is particularly painful because it's the consequence of an enlightened attempt to do better. Khrushchev had taken advice from reforming economists and was trying his best to be to be a good anti-Stalinist. So when they said you should raise the price of meat so we could pay more to collective farmers and that will improve the supply of meat, he did it. And he made what for the Soviet Union was one of the, the most honest attempts to explain himself that ever happened. There were full page newspaper advertisements saying we know we don't usually raise prices, this is why we're doing it. And instead of the, the grateful populace going, oh they're trusting us, they rioted and in the town of Novocherkask there was a kind of uprising which was very bloodily suppressed and nobody knew about it except the immediate witnesses um, and people at the top of Soviet politics and for the whole of the rest of the Soviet time they never raised food prices again they they felt they had learned from experience that that was disastrous but the only route to kind of economic rationality in the Soviet Union, whether it's socialist rationality or, or capitalist rationality, would have depended on the prices people paid for things having some relationship to the difficulty of of producing them. Novocherkask, in a grim and tragic way, prevented the Soviet Union from ever again trying 
trying to be sensible about the prices of things. You talked about allowing fictional characters into this book and what that enabled you to do. But tell me how you actually went about that, you know, this this intermingling of real characters, real events with imagined characters and events. How did you, because it struck me the plotting of it, the, the planning of it must have been a major, must have been a, <laughs> a similar sort of seven year plan kind of um, complexity. Once I knew I was writing fictional kind of fiction, I knew I wanted I wanted a I wanted a blend of real people and and unreal people. If I said I wanted to do what Tolstoy did, that will make me sound immensely big-headed. I wanted to do what Tolstoy did, except far far worse. For the record, where he he let himself bring Napoleon into into War and Peace. I wanted Khrushchev up there at the top as a as a character, and I wanted the real scientists who are involved in in the mathematical economics I'm I'm talking about but around them and particularly to kind of to register the effects of the ideas I wanted I wanted a world and a world that was kind of connected laterally you're asking how I how I plotted it and 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 the answer is by kind of pursuing the lateral sideways connections between the characters lives I wanted them to be to be joined by cause and effect rather than by being in a conventional way in the same story. So it's not really about one fictional world. It's about a whole group with the same effects knocking on through those separate worlds so that ideas which one person is thinking a good idea in one place will turn up completely anonymous and not even recognised in, in, in somebody else's life having having the most private of effects but again i wanted these to be so far as possible real characters so i wasn't trying to devise an economic effect and then think of somebody to illustrate it i was thinking of if anything i i thought of i thought of good places good good ways i should be looking and then tried to find real people to to occupy those places and then thought about process and how to show things happening in their lives once I'd once I'd got them there are quite a lot of characters in it but they kind of interlace all the stories do come to an end though sometimes by by implication the other thing I did have slightly in my head is David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas I mean his pattern there is is mirror image with with the mirror placed exactly halfway through halfway through the book so his stories are nested my stories are not tidily nested, but they are all dropped and then resumed again so that we can see, I suppose, essentially hope turning to disappointment in all of those lives with surprises about how it does it and surprises in how the stories end up being connected. I suppose there's probably a kind of, there's a conflict for any novelist between the desire for formal neatness and the desire to produce something which feels lifelike and all novels are compromises. My compromise, I hope, is one which doesn't subordinate the characters to the pattern of the whole book, but which nevertheless preserves a pattern. Francis Spufford. Red Plenty is available in hardback and the book has an accompanying website at redplenty.com. You can find out more about Francis's books by visiting the Faber website at faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I hope you'll join me again soon for more conversations with authors. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.